Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for January 15th, 2010. Ooh, almost almost slipped up there, Cliff. <laughs> Episode 151 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes of Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's great to be with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. And at the controls, we've got environmental Annie Koalecki. Good afternoon. Good day, Annie. And today's segments are going to be, we're going to do a consumer show with uh, Radio Joe. Cliff's going to interview me here. We'll have a little fun with that and uh, we'll do our halftime with Dr. Dieter. I see he's on the line. Good day, Dieter. And then uh, we'll do a roundup. If anybody wants to jump in on the roundup, maybe we'll see Glenn Fellman jump in here. We've been uh, adding that blog since uh, we've been gone, though. We haven't had one lately, but we'll have one again today at the end of the show at iaqradio.com. Before we start, though, let's thank those sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, uh, let's uh, from there, let's uh, talk about first contact in the show. You can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547 and you can also go to iaqradio.com and follow the link that says go to the show. You can connect from there, or you can download shows from there and or from iTunes. Don't forget we have those ABIH certification maintenance points, IICRC, continuing education credits, and the ACAC renewal credits. Just email me and request a quiz, and we'll send you one out and uh, send you out the information on how to get your renewal credits. That's joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Jose. (laughs) 
Well, we're going to start 2010 with a clean slate. Okay, right. first question of the year. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the trivia question for Friday, January 15th, 2010. How many tablespoons of assorted particles do you think people breathe in in an average day? Okay. Interesting. All right. How many tablespoons of assorted particles? Quite a few. Not, well, well, a tablespoon's a lot, huh? They'll have to sort it out. All right. All right. So how about some intro music for our guest? <laughs> what would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. Oh, baby, how Well, we wanted to tie in Joe, and we wanted to tie in help for our friends, and uh, this is a specific uh, telephone friend that, that Joe had. Joe, what's the motivation for doing the show today? Well, I get calls all the time, Cliff, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners do. We don't have a lot of consumer listeners, but uh, in fact, most of our, almost all of our listeners are practitioners, so you probably all get the same calls I get. And I got one that was a little unusual a couple of weeks back that made me think, you know, we really need to put a show together that includes some of the stuff that I have to keep repeating over and over to customers, that uh, to people that call in, uh, consumers who call and ask for our opinion about things like mold or maybe with you uh, water damage restoration or smoke, et cetera. So I thought it would be a great idea to put something together that I could refer them to and say, listen to this show, and then call me back so that we don't have to repeat things. Gotcha. Does the type of consumer make a difference? Absolutely. Uh, we get all kinds. The, the lady I talked to was, um, that was the reason for this show was moving into a home. Or actually, they were living in the home, but they were moving their son to another part of the home and their son had had a double lung transplant. And they were moving him into a room that had been recently remodeled, and when they went to move him into the room, they noticed that there was some mold on the OSB, which was um, on the roof. Uh, it was the roof decking, essentially. And she was very concerned because he's obviously on a lot of, uh, you know, immune-suppressing-type drugs. She said he takes over 40 different pills a day and she was very concerned about the mold on the ceiling in this uh, or on the underside of the roof deck in this addition on her home so I uh, thought you know this is one that we really need to be very cautious with um, and so we talked to her about uh, first of all I referred her to one of the um, one of the references on our website the uh, occupational environmental health uh, specialty units that uh, the environmental health specialty units, and then um, talk to her about her consultant. So, does um, do people call for themselves? Or do they call for other people? You know, what's the driving force for people to contact you? 
well, we, we get all kinds of calls. Most of them are individuals, but we'll also get calls from people who are managing buildings. Um, sometimes we'll get calls from people who are, are concerned about things like um, they're, they're managing, let's say, property that's been repossessed, um, which is another category. We get homeowners. We get people who are, are renting. So what I want to try and do is um, make sure that we keep that in mind as we go through the issues with respect to mold remediation. Everybody's got a different motivation for why they're calling about these problems. Uh, would you say it's important for people to take charge and get involved in this uh, in this process? Yeah, absolutely. That's the key. You know, and that's the first thing I tell them all is to you've got to do your homework. And the problem is a lot of them don't know where to go for good, accurate information. And like this uh, person that called that was a little worried about the consultant she was currently using. She just didn't have a good feeling about the consultant she was using. And uh, she called around and, and somehow got my name. And well, I know how somebody referred her to me. And um, it's tough to find good, accurate information on the issue that doesn't conflict with other information. There's a ton of information out there. We have more information than we've ever had available to us. It's sifting through and sorting out that information. That is a problem for a lot of people. And that's what we hope to do today is get some good information for people that uh, they can rely on that is accurate that they can go back and find the research for if necessary or the resource if necessary you know I just want to go back a minute you know you talked about this lack of trust in the consultant and I'm wondering whether it's a lack of trust or lack of agreement you know because in certain situations people make their own diagnosis this is what it is I know what it is and the consultant may not agree with them uh, could you comment on that yeah I I agree with you. In this case, that wasn't, I don't believe that was the case. Um, she was more concerned that she couldn't find any information on the gentleman. You know, he, she had found him maybe in the yellow pages. I, I didn't get the exact answer on that, but um, she had found him. And then he had been recommending some things she wasn't sure about. And so she made a few calls and talked to a couple of people that made her think, you know, I, I don't think he really understands the building issues as as well as he should. And that was very uh, insightful on her part, because that's a key point. Joe, why did you title the show, You Don't Have a Mold Problem? Well, it, exactly for the, the reason that we talk about on a regular basis. These The mold is a symptom of a bigger problem. Uh, the moisture is the problem, not the mold. And that was one of her concerns. She knew moisture was the problem. She knew mold was a problem for her son. So here we had a pretty clear-cut situation. Someone who had a son that was at a much higher risk of infection, fungal infection in this case, because he was immune compromised. She knew she had to fix the moisture problem. She just wasn't sure who the right person was to help her with fixing that moisture problem. Then she wasn't sure what level of cleanup she had to do to ensure that her son wouldn't be at a higher risk for developing this type of infection. Joe, what's black mold? <laughs> it's one of those things that drives you crazy, Cliff. Um, black mold is just a, a, a type of fungi, filamentous fungi that has a, a substance called melanin in it. We talked about that with uh, 
let's see, one of our earliest guests, Dr. Money, Dr. Yeah, Nick, Money, Nick Money, and um, it's, a, it's a terrible way to describe a mold situation. I wish people just wouldn't use the term, but we see it over and over. We get people calling about it. It also comes from the fact that some of the earliest mold uh, concerns arose over problems with a particular type of mold, stachybotrys, stachybotrys, people use different pronunciations, and that one happens to look black in many cases. Um, it, it also is one that caused a lot of concern and, and still does to this day. So uh, people use that generic term black mold to think that, you know, any black mold's good and the blue, green, and orange and pink stuff's all fine. You know, so we have to watch that. Well, if you don't like the term black mold, I'll give you another one. How about toxic mold? Yeah, there's another one. Okay, everything's toxic, right? Uh, Dr. Dieter will be on at halftime here. He'll tell us everything's toxic. And uh, we do have concerns with three different types of health issues, and we've talked with numerous MDs on the show here, and um, and some people categorize it a little bit differently, but let's go with what the most common categories are. People were concerned about allergic reactions and exacerbation of asthma. Uh, people are also worried about the potential toxicity of different types of, of fungi, and, and some people were more concerned about infection, like the lady I was talking to. And, and we get a lot of people talking about toxic mold, and I just essentially tell people the bottom line is this. I don't care whether it's black mold, green mold, blue mold, purple mold, toxic mold, infectious mold, allergenic mold. It doesn't need to be growing in your house, you know, and, and you need to fix the moisture problem, clean it up, and the level of cleanup and the level of care you take during the cleanup may well depend on the type of facility the type of people in the facility, the occupancy status of the facility, and maybe even other uh, other issues. Yeah, I think you have to do some sort of risk, um, make decisions based on risk. Joe, why are there three types of people engaged in the mold remediation industry? There's consultants, there's contractors, and then there's contractor consultants. That's a good one. That's a good one, Cliff. Um, we, we get this question quite a bit, and people get confused about, do I need a consultant? Do I need a contractor? Do I need both? Can one person do both? And really, all of the above can be true. I mean, you know, there are very good contractors, and there are situations where a contractor can come in, can evaluate a situation, what um, the IICRC refers to as a preliminary determination, they can come in if it's a very clear scope of work and there aren't health issues that uh, appear to be related to the issue at hand, then those people are oftentimes very well suited to clean that up, to do it in an efficient way, and oftentimes they also know how to fix the moisture problem. Now, a lot of times we get into situations that are a little more complicated when there are health concerns, when the scope of work is not as clear. And sometimes in those cases, you need to bring in a consultant who specializes in doing environmental assessments. And one of the things I want to make sure we emphasize here is this. Wayne Baker said it well on a show we did a while back. Um, 
you've got to pick your environmental consultant carefully. You don't want someone, in my opinion now, who is just looking for mold. Because if all you got a ha- is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right. You know, so the, there may not even be a mold problem that's causing the health problem within a home. I think it's better to have a consultant with a broad background who will come in and look at more than just is there a mold problem. So you've got to be careful as a consumer to choose a consultant, especially when you're talking about health concerns or not very well-defined scopes of a problem, you need a consultant who's well-rounded, who can look at the overall indoor environmental quality in the situation, assess the situation, and then assist you as a homeowner, as a building manager, as a uh, property manager of some type, assist you in managing how you're going to handle that situation and also assist you in determining whether or not it's the mold you think it is because a lot of people think it's mold. You know, that's the big thing in the, in the, in the media right now. It's mold. It's a mold problem. Well, can you comment if it's not mold, what else could it be? Sure, there's any number of problems you could have. It could be uh, off-gassing from volatile organic compounds in, in a building. It, it could be um, particulate, numerous different types of particulate, not just mold problems. Uh, people have problems from numerous particulate issues. It could be ventilation issues. It could be... Carbon, uh, you could have a carbon monoxide issue that you're not aware of. So there's a, there's a lot of things. I just came back from a really interesting three-day conference with the National Center for Healthy Housing. And uh, they look at a more comprehensive approach to the issue. And I, I really would like to see the people within the mold industry start to take that same more comprehensive approach look at the overall issue and also consumers need to look at is it maybe something other than this mold um, is is there more than one issue and oftentimes there are so there's a lot of different things that could be causing these how, problems how would the consumer go about uh, consult or go about locating and qualifying the right consultant for them that's that's a good question cliff now the first thing we've got to do is decide if you even do you need a consultant are you having health issues you know I mean we've got to figure out what type of consumer this is is this someone like the lady in my case that called she needed a good consultant all right but not only did she need a good consultant she needed good information from a pediatric environmental specialist because that was her situation. So you've got to look at the situation. What is your situation? Are you simply selling your home and somebody did a home inspection and they told you, you find a little, they find a little mold in your crawl space? Now, you don't have a health issue. It's pretty well defined what the scope of work is. Do you really need a consultant for that? Oftentimes you don't. You, know, you can get by without a consultant. But if you've got a situation like this, lady had in um, uh, Eastern PA, it happened to be, absolutely, she needed a good consultant to oversee that project and ensure that she had good communication with her physician, her contractor, and anybody that was going to fix the moisture problem because there may be more than one contractor. So he was kind of acting like this consultant she ended up getting is going to act more like a general, almost like a 
a GC. You know, he was he was running the project. He'd come in, he would write a scope of work, he would determine what the moisture problem was, and he would then determine what level of cleanliness was necessary in that home at the end. And that can vary tremendously. You know, right now we have this big debate going on about health care, uh, you know, universal health care, non-universal health care. And I want to bring this into the discussion because uh, I, I think that there's an important point. Think about it like this, Joe. Uh, if you get sick um, and you don't have health care, what you need to do is you need to make your own diagnosis and you need to kind of self-medicate. However, if you have health insurance, then you go to a doctor and you kind of go through the, the same procedures. We have this homeowner. In certain situations, they have insurance that's going to pay for this. In other situations, they don't have insurance and they have to pay for it themselves. So I think maybe one of the first things they probably should think about is some sort of budgetary uh, constraints. Excellent. Resources. What are your resources? You know, that's an important question. And fortunately for, I, I thought going in, the lady that called me, I didn't ask the question, I should have, was on a really tight budget. As it turns out, she had the resources to bring in a really good consultant and help her with that situation. So I was referring her to uh, a free resource, the uh, environmental pediatric specialty care units there, and uh, to help with the medical issue because I didn't want to act like a doctor. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an MD. We shouldn't be making those types of decisions. We should be helping coordinate with her MD. But her own MD wasn't positive and was looking for someone who specialized in this area and um, wasn't positive what the level of cleanliness needed to be and what needed to be in that situation. And he was actually concerned, you know, and he was looking for someone to consult with. So you're correct. I mean, some people have resources to go out and to get the best consultant to write a good protocol for the remediation contractor, then to oversee the project and bring in a good remediation contractor. Others, unfortunately, don't have those resources. So they may use a health department to assist them in determining what needs to be done. They may have to do some of this work on their own. If they do the work on their own, they're going to have to find some resources for how they can do that and do it in a manner where they don't cause problems for themselves or for, them fam for their family. So we get a wide spectrum, and that's a great question. I think before we get off this idea of insurance, I just thought of something. I'm looking for some comment from you. You know, if I injured my foot, for instance, uh, the doctor might prescribe, you know, some drugs for pain or whatever, rehab, and he might prescribe an appliance such as a pair of crutches. You know, that's an appliance. If it's more serious than that, they may get me a wheelchair. They either rent me one or they would buy me one. If I was injured in an automobile accident, my house might need to be renovated to, you know, if I'm wheelchair bound, they have to lower the cabinets, they have to widen the doors, they have to change the bathrooms around so we can get in and we can get out. And that's because of an injury or a health problem. If you think about it, there may be some resources there on the medical side. If the doctor prescribes this, if, uh, you know, the doctor you know, prescribes the fact that some renovations have to be done in a certain manner. There may actually be homeowners coverage on one side, there may be medical coverage on the other side, and there may be an overlapping coverage that's in between. So there's that possibility for them to explore. 
Well, that's something that, uh, again, came up at this meeting uh, this week. Um, Kevin Kennedy, who works with the uh, Children's Health in Kansas City uh, Children's Hospital, he has been successful in getting health insurance carriers to cover a home health assessment, not a mold inspection, but a home health assessment. And they have been successful in doing that. And that is a trend that I think we're going to see more of. Now, as far as getting them to pay for the remediation, they've had difficulty getting insurance to pay for that. But what they do is they refer people to other resources. So there are other community resources. There may be a uh, program, for instance, for um, people with uh, in low, on low income for renovation projects. There are faith-based initiatives out there where they can refer them to a, a faith-based initiative. There are other community organizations they may be able to refer them to. For instance, there are a lot of good lead prevention programs around the country, and there's a lot of government money being used to assist people with cleaning up lead-based paint problems. Well, a lot of lead-based paint problems are caused by moisture. You got moisture, it starts to cause cracking, crilling, you know, chipping paint, and um, that paint becomes dusty, it becomes a problem. So there are resources out there. You've got to be a little creative, and you've got to do your homework. You've got to keep plugging away, keep looking. And then there's also friends, there's family, there's there's your community, there's, um, again, your church in your local area. There's a lot of different people out there that are willing to help those that are in need get some of these services taken care of. You know, one of the things we do on the show is uh, neither of us are afraid to ask the, the hard question. You know, what hard question or questions do you think the consumer should ask a potential consultant? All right, if you're a consultant, you're trying to hire a consultant. I'm, I'm, let's say I'm a homeowner, okay, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not middle class. I'm not, you know, I've got a little bit of money for this, but I certainly don't want to put thousands of dollars into uh, uh, this mold project. And I've got some problem in my uh, crawl space. We'll use a uh, crawl space situation on this one. Now, one of the first things I want to do, and it doesn't really matter whether it's a crawl space or your attic or whatever, I want to get three or more good references from that consultant on similar jobs they've done in the past, just like anything else, just like any other service you buy. I'm going to check to see what their website looks like. If I've got a website full of black mold and toxic mold and scare tactics, I'm going to steer myself away from that person. Okay, I'm going to look at the local Better Business Bureau. I'm going to talk to my neighbors. A lot of times, neighbors are a great resource for these issues. We live in neighborhoods, generally. The neighborhoods are oftentimes built similar. You may have a neighbor who's had the same problem in the past who knows what the moisture problem was and knows a good consultant that did a good job for them. You may want to uh, check with other resources like Angie's List. You may want to, first of all, I'd also find out how many years of experience that person has and, and see if it was applicable. Now, later, I know we'll talk about things like certifications and training and statements of qualifications, but those are the types of things. You want to do your homework and I always recommend talking to at least two people, if not more. Now, some areas of the country, that's a little tough. But Do you think it would be reasonable to ask the consultant for some references and you know, people that he's worked for, uh, 
testimonials, that sort of thing? Absolutely. That's top on the list. Get, get at least three references from similar jobs. Very important. Okay. Well, Joe, we're like halfway through. <laughs> Time really flies when you're having fun. All right. Okay. Um, I guess what we should do is let's thank our sponsors again so we get that taken care of at halftime. And bring Dr. Dieter on. We're to have as our first association sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Now, thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry's products providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry's is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Dr. Dieter, how are you? Yeah, hi there. Good day, everybody. Good day, day, Dieter. Yeah, well, you gave me a good introduction with that toxic stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For the the listeners, Joe and I have been working together now, what, nine, ten years, something like that. Yes, sir. And uh, Joe may have heard that, but all, and he said it correctly, (laughs) all substances are toxic. And let me give you an example. Nobody thinks that distilled water is toxic stuff. Yet you can drink distilled water faster than your kidneys can eliminate it, and you are dead. And we hear that once in a while during the summer. Little kids have drinking contests of who can drink more water, you know, Jim or Joe. So um, there it's, yeah. <laughs> It's it's the dose that kills. You know, obviously, one glass of water is good for you. A gallon of it is going to kill you. Let me give you another example. Most people don't think of oxygen being a toxic material. Of course, we all need it. I can put somebody into an oxygen, a pure oxygen atmosphere, which is a very dangerous thing to do. The place may blow up as the astronauts in the space capsule and uh, anyway, even assuming that it doesn't blow up, and people will die a terrible death after about two weeks or so in this wonderful non-toxic oxygen. It just, it's again, it's one of those things. It's the dose that kills. Dear. And let me give you another example of with the dose. The, I have two containers. You can't see through them. And you have to eat either one of them or we kill you. And one contains arsenic and the other one contains table salt. 
Which one do you choose to take? Well, I take the arsenic because in my bottle is one milligram of arsenic. I swallow that one. I walk out of here as though absolutely nothing happened. The other container had about 35 to 40 grams of table salt in it, and that person is going to end up in the emergency room. So it's the dose that makes all the difference. Dieter, the so, one, Dieter I have a question for you. Back on the oxygen, why, did, sure. why or how did oxygen blind babies? I know that it did somehow in incubators. How did that at, happen? At, I don't know. Okay. I don't know that. Of, it, obviously, it has something to do with the seeing nerve, right. um, uh, uh, but uh, I, don't know how to, I don't know how it attacks. In fact, I have a very good friend who is legally blind, and he was a premature, and, and uh, he is 40, 45 years old. And at that time, we were not that aware of it. Mm-hmm. Today we are. You know, that is, it's, it's incredibly dangerous. Right. It's actually dangerous at depth, too, if you're breathing it um, underwater. Yes, it is. Right, yeah. 33 feet about So you are di- a diver, and you, you are aware of those things. Yes, indeed. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Dieter. Please uh, hang on and come back and kind of join us uh, at the end. Uh, now, back to, back to you, Joe. You, I think you left this idea of consultants uh, a little bit unfinished. Could okay. you kind of pick up on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about hiring a consultant, and there are some great consultants out there. There's some really good people, and it's it's getting better. All right, we're getting more and more people with training, with um a lot of years of experience, they're starting to understand these issues. But you've got to pick the, the consultant that works well for you. You know, if you don't have good communication with your consultant, if, if you just don't feel comfortable with them, you may have to move on to somebody else. You also need to compare apples to apples. And what I mean by that, this is really important, you need to look at what service the consultant is offering and compare apples to apples. For instance, is your consultant going to just come in and take some air samples and tell you uh, or send you a report showing that you've got uh, 500,000 spores of some mold and then that type of mold is allergenic? Or is your consultant going to come in and actually evaluate the moisture issue tell you how to solve the moisture issue or point you in the direction of someone who can help you solve the moisture issue, is that consultant also then going to help you write a protocol for the remediation? Or are they just going to, like I said, send you a report with a bunch of numbers that you can't understand? Consumers need to compare apples to apples. So you need to have a feeling for what services you need, again, based on your situation, the reason you're calling the consultant, the um, types of people in the home, whether you are a homeowner, a building owner, a building manager, etc. You need to know what you want, and then you need to compare apples to apples. Now, you don't always know exactly what you want, but that's part of the reason you talk to these consultants. You get from them what do I get for this service? Get a very clear, well-written proposal from the consultant saying, for this amount of money, I am going to do these things for you. Are they going to find your moisture problem? Are they going to help fix your moisture problem? Are they going to 
refer you to someone that fixes your moisture problem? Are they going to stay with you and make sure that the contractor does what whatever they recommend be done, you know, is, needs to be done? And and this, there's such a wide range out there, cliff of people with backgrounds and certifications, and it's it's so darn confusing to people because you've got these this alphabet soup of certifications and um, training and experience and so on. Get a statement of qualifications. It's uh, oftentimes referred to as an SOQ from your consultant and or your contractor. If they don't have a statement of qualifications, that's okay, although most good ones will have some kind of statement of qualifications and or a CV, curriculum vitae, uh, uh, a ref, uh, uh, even a resume of some type. Get a good resume from the consultant. See what kind of experience they have. See what type of projects they've done in the past. See what type of meetings they've attended, what types of training they've had, and also what kind of certifications. There's no one thing that makes a good consultant. It's a combination of things, and they should be somewhat broad in their perspective. I, again, I recommend that. Unless you know, you know, I got a, a report from the home inspector that says, before I sell this home, I've got to remove this amount of mold. Then you just get someone in there that can verify that that's what you did. You know, how important is this communication and the client understands? I mean, they hear these words toxic this and stachybotrys and uh, aspergillus and I, I mean how important is it for you to understand the language that the consultant uses it's you know the the consultant should be able to bring it to into layman's terms for you you know this is what needs to be done this is how I plan on seeing that it gets done this is the service I'm going to offer and this is the price that service is going to cost you and they need to be clear up front whether or not they are also going to do any of the other services that you need. So there are consultants who also are remediators. And in some parts of the country, that may be your best bet. You know, And on some projects, you may have a contractor who could figure out for you very quickly what needs to be done. I think I mentioned that before. Some people do both. It's not illegal. Some people consider it a conflict of interest. But you know, building owners, for instance, oftentimes want that type of service. They want that one-stop shop. I would like to see a lot of homeowners, if they find they need a consultant because they are concerned about a health issue, the problem is not well-defined. My personal preference is that they hire the consultant themselves and not let the contractor hire the consultant, and that they give the consultant some type of control over the project. So, the consultant writes the protocol, tells the con the client how they want the job done or how the job should be done, and then helps to oversee it to make sure it is done. And they give the consultant a separate contract from the contractor. I think that works well. You know, in, in medicine, a doctor can make the diagnosis and he can do the treatment. You know, I, I, I don't always think a conflict of interest always exists in these situations. In, right. in some cases, right. you know, in some cases they send you to a specialist. And it, I think you need to look at this the same way. You know, in some cases, a good water damage guy is all you need. They come in, they find the source, they tell you how to fix it. Well, Joe, do you think the, that my home builder, 
who built my leaky, defective home to begin with, is the right guy to solve the moisture problem and, and put it back together again. Well, that's a tough one there, Cliff. Uh, you know, they certainly are the person who should help you with that. And in many cases, I do believe that eventually those things get ironed out. But in other cases, they don't. And that's when we start to see real problems. When, when the person who built the home that you're having problems with will not assist you, that's when you need to bring in someone who can. Oftentimes, it will be a consultant first. But a lot of these consultants are also building science-type people, which isn't something we've talked about quite a bit yet. You know, you've got people that specialize in uh, industrial hygiene type issues. So they're looking more at exposure issues and whether or not the um, source is causing the uh, exposure that people are having and then the resulting health effects. So they're looking at those types of things. Other people are looking at just what are the problems with the building. Um, some can do both, you know, and, and those are great people to get on a project. In fact, that's what the lady I ended up, um, she ended up finding a consultant who was very good with both building science and with determining whether or not the source could be a problem for her son down the road. You know, earlier you mentioned the word certification. I'm going to throw in, in addition to that credential, uh, what sort of certification or credentials should consumer look for you know, there's a there's a myriad of, of these certifications out there. There's no one that makes someone the right person to do your particular job. You've got to look at the certification program, the certification that they hold, but also at their other experiences. And, and whether or not their training is applicable or their certification is applicable, there's a certification for certified industrial hygienist. It's one of the most prestigious certifications in, in, the, in the country. Um, and many of them are very good with these microbial issues. Others are not very well versed in these microbial issues. So again, you've got to look at both the certification and you've got to look at their experience as well. Have they done this type of work in the past? Now you've got another alphabet soup out there, and, and I'll, I'll name a few organizations because I think there are a couple of really good ones. The, um, the ABIH is the Certified Industrial Hygiene Program, Certified Industrial Hygienist. On the contractor side, you've got people who have certifications from the IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. They have some good certification programs. You've got this uh, ACAC, now the American uh, Certification Accreditation Council, or the American Council for Accredited Certification. I get it confused. Um, there are some good certifications there. The Restoration Industry Association has some good certification programs. There is a certification for certified safety professionals that is a, a good certification. Uh, there is... Um, a group called the Indoor Air Quality Association. They don't issue certifications any longer, but members of these groups oftentimes are people who are trying to keep up with the cutting edge issues in the industry. I'm not saying they have to be a member to be good. Um, there's many who aren't, but I look for people who are, I mean, I'll tell you, let me give you an example here, Cliff. I'll get a call. It happens all the time. I get this call 
and they say, I live in, I don't know, Pocomoke, Maryland. All right, I'll pick that out. Pocomoke, Maryland. Too far for me to travel. Uh, I don't really do as much consulting as I used to, but they're looking for a consultant or a contractor. And so I've trained a lot of these people. I'll look in my database first and see if I know of anyone and if their name really pops up as somebody that's good. But then I'll go to the Indoor Air Quality Association's listing of professionals and look and see who's in the area from the Indoor Air Quality Association. I'll also go to the ACAC.org website and look and see which certified people are in the area from that group. I'll, I'll check with my friends at the Restoration Industry Association or at the IICRC to see what types of people in that area might be the best fit for this particular project. Joe, let's, let's look on the screen. I, I think Guest 12 is probably a consumer, and what they asked was, what would the average cost be for the service? We uh, queried them back what service. They responded back to find a source of water, write a scope, perform a small remediation project. Maybe we should kind of comment on that. I'll do the water part. You could do the scope, and then maybe we'll do the each do the remediation side. Okay. As far as finding the source of water, sometimes that's really, really simple uh, and doesn't take a lot of diagnostic equipment. Uh, you know, visually you can find it. You, know, you look at the outside of the house, how the house sloped and graded and, and so on and so forth. And In other situations, it takes... Uh, the use of moisture meters in other situations, it might take the use of infrared cameras. So, I mean, if you if if the, the person inspecting the home is using a tool that costs three hundred dollars, uh, it's going to probably cost less than if he's using a tool that costs fifteen thousand dollars and he has to get there early in the morning uh, so that you know yeah. he can properly monitor from the outside. And let me add, there are some situations, Cliff, where where none of those things are helpful in finding right. the moisture problem. And, and we had Joe Steebrook on the show, and I believe he said about 90% of the time your moisture problem is going to be uh, liquid water, okay? It's the other 10 to 20% of the time that's a little more difficult to locate uh, and, to, and to find. And oftentimes those involve something with your heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system. And you will have vapor moisture problems as opposed to liquid moisture problems. We also get some occasional solid liquid problems here in the uh, north uh, when we get ice damming. But, yeah, sometimes um, even a very, you know, competent consultant will have a difficult time finding why the moisture problem is occurring. Then they have to go to a specialist. Okay. Well, what what about uh, writing a scope? I mean, how much should that cost? Well, let's let's go back. Did did we give them a price for the first part, or should we? Uh, I mean, typically you're looking at uh, having someone come out to your home. You're you're talking about for a visit, come out for a couple of hours. You're looking at two to three hundred, three hundred fifty bucks. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. And as far as writing a scope goes, um, I, I that depends on whether it's the scope for them or whether it's the scope for someone else. Because uh, in certain situations, if we would get the work, a lot of times we might not charge for the scope. Uh, if our job is to just prepare the scope and we're not going to do the work, then there would be a charge for that. I, I think the one thing that you're probably not going to get, Guest 12, is a free estimate where someone's going to come out and they're going to do all this stuff for free, where they're going to do the diagnosis, they're going to write the scope, 
Uh, I doubt that anyone is going to do that for free because it does take a lot of time, and there are a lot of risks that go along uh, with doing this, liability issues. And the, and the scope of work is going to be very much dependent on the size of the project. I noticed the question says a small remediation project. Well, Small's relative. Uh, yeah, small's a tough question for me. On a small remediation project, you could well, um, you know, y you could well end up spending maybe another thousand dollars for a scope of work, and maybe less. You know, it depends on on how small. I mean, that's a really tough one. Now, on a bigger project, where we have people who are, for instance, writing a protocol for uh, well. Uh, job you looked at yesterday, Cliff, uh, I would imagine the protocol on that project is going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Now, this was a, a major project, so there's a wide range, but you're looking at spending, you know, anywhere from uh, $300 for someone to come out and write you up a little report and tell you what to fix and, and who that um, who might be good to fix it, up to thousands of dollars to have someone come in initially, review your situation, do an evaluation of your home, and then write a protocol, and then come back out and make sure that the contractor followed the protocol and did what was supposed to be done according to that protocol. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention that I forgot when we were talking about a consultant and doing the initial investigation, this varies tremendously as well, but I really highly recommend you consumers that bring in a consultant Try not to limit their service to just looking at, and unless you're positive it's just a real small scope of work, try not to limit them to just looking at one little part of your building or one little part of your home. It doesn't hurt to spend a little extra money and have a quality consultant do a full walkthrough of your home and do some of these simple diagnostics you, met, you mentioned earlier, Cliff, some uh, moisture meters, some relative humidity, some temperature, take a look at the HVAC system, see what the uh, condition of the HVAC system is, go into the crawl space, go up into the attic. I, I had a project many years back where uh, we had a woman who was sick. She was having problems and breathing problems in her home, and um, they thought they found the problem. It was the mold in the attic, okay? They brought in a contractor. I wasn't the consultant on this. I happened to be working with the contractor. We were doing some case study type stuff. We went out, took pictures, did the project. Um, week later, they called. We're still sick. The contractor initially had told them from the start, you need to get a consultant in here to do a thorough investigation of your home. They said, no, we think we know where the problem is, you know, just have them, have them do this. So the contractor did it. The guy paid for it on his American Express, too. I'll never forget it. It was about a $4,000 remediation. They had to tear up all the uh, plywood in the attic. All the insulation came out, and it was because they had capped off a uh, vent, from vent from a bathroom. bathroom. Okay, so now they come back and uh, they tell them, "Look, we find the problem. You know, she's still sick. She's still having problems. We find the problem. We want you to come out and do the remediation in our basement. There was a 20 foot, 20 square foot, maybe 30 square foot area that was wet from a uh, leak from their hose. Their hose had gone outside. It was frozen." They left. They did the remediation. They left. Got called again. She's still sick. All right, so the third time they finally got someone to come in and do a thorough evaluation of the home. As it turned out, the problem all along had been 
behind the refrigerator. The ice maker line had been leaking all along. They had to tear out all the cabinets and the wall behind the refrigerator because it was all wet and it was all, actually it wasn't even structurally good anymore. So there was no question whether it had to be torn out or not. So that was a situation where a good thorough investigation up front might have helped save a lot of headaches down the road. What about the Terminator solution, Joe, when uh, the solution is we're going to come out to your house and we're going to spray this or we're going to fog that and everything's going to be better? I stay away from it. Okay. That's just all I can say. Um, it's There are rare occasions where uh, doing some type of, of uh, spraying or fogging may be helpful, but it's just not... Not something that I would recommend for, for homeowners. What does a mold remediation project look like? That's a great question, Cliff, because they can vary tremendously. And I teach mold remediators, and, and we discuss the three levels of containment. We can either have source, local, or full containment. Okay, Source containment is simply that someone comes out, and, and some homeowners can do this themselves. They... Can uh, source containment can be as simple as putting a fan in the window right next to where you're doing the work and, and pulling things out. Now, professionals normally use what they call an air filtration device, which not only pulls the uh, contaminants away from the area where they're doing the work and out of the home, but it also filters those contaminants. But um, source containment is the simplest uh, um, uh, and used quite often and used quite effectively. You don't always have to have an elaborate containment. The second level up is what they call, uh, you got source local containment. Local containment is oftentimes referred to as a, a, a mini containment. So you may have a situation like a bathroom, for instance, where the contractor will come up, put some plastic around the doorway, put in an air filtration device that creates what they call a negative pressure within that area so that while they are tearing out the sheetrock and the moldy materials, that is all contained to that work area. And it can be rather done you know, pretty easily. It's not something that needs to be too terribly elaborate, but um, we've got source, then we've got local containment. They should always be using some type of containment if they're doing professional mold remediation. Again, it might not be sheets of plastic. It might just be they have a HEPA vacuum very close to the area where they're working and they're cleaning. And as they're cleaning, they're vacuuming it right up. And these would be only on very small projects. On a medium-sized project, you might have a local containment with just plastic sheet keeping that room separated from the other areas in the home. And of course, they should be using um, the types of removal techniques where they're not, you know, taking stuff and dragging it through your home. They should be bagging it up, taking it out carefully, or maybe taking it out through a window and keeping that area essentially contained from other parts of the building. The third level is what they call full containment. And full containment is very similar to what you might expect to see on an asbestos abatement project, where you've got the entire room, or in some cases the entire building, under a negative pressure containment situation where we've got plastic up over the windows. Sometimes we've got plastic walls, depending on whether we're dividing areas of the building off. There's air filtration devices being used as a negative air machine. And uh, in all of these situations, you're, you should expect to see 
an employee using some type of personal protective equipment, and I wouldn't get freaked out by that because those people were doing this work on a daily basis. They need some kind of additional personal protective equipment. So that gives you a, a little bit of an idea based on the level of the project. Joe, can a homeowner do this work themselves? Absolutely. I, I don't think it's the optimal situation. Obviously, you'd prefer to have a professional come in and do it, but oftentimes there are projects where a homeowner can do it themselves. Um, in the uh, standards that we follow in the industry, and there are, there are several, uh, most of them will, will have allowances in them or will have guidance in them for people to do projects, whether it's a homeowner, building owner, building manager, in-house essentially. And so you could follow those guidelines. We have them posted on our website. Uh, the New York City guidelines are a good example where they have small, essentially we'll say small, medium, and large projects. The EPA guidelines show how building owners can do some of their own small-scale remediation. And even residential property, there are many people who do these projects on their own. But I would highly recommend doing your homework, reading up on it, going to the documents we're going to talk about, and making sure that you don't make a mess of your home as well. I mean, I wouldn't get involved in a really elaborate, large project, for instance, a crawl space remediation where you've got a lot of mold contamination. That's something for a professional. But uh, on a small project, absolutely. You know, Joe, we can talk about what ifs, and it's, sometimes it's difficult for uh, listeners to talk about what ifs, but let's talk about what was. I happen to know that you had a mold remediation project done in your own house. And the question is, what role did sampling play? Could you tell a little bit about you know, the source of the water and what you did and what sort of sampling you did if you did any? And Well, that one's a little different. Um, we did sampling there, although I, I don't know if I would have recommended, I don't know if I would recommend today what we did then. And part of the reason was we did it as a case study as well. So we did a lot more sampling than was necessary, in my opinion, for that type of project today. Sampling is one of the most controversial issues in this industry right now. And a lot of times people really want samples. You know, they want that piece of paper they can look at, Cliff, that says, you know, you've got this, that, and the other thing. And you know, when we're talking sampling, now let me clarify for the consumers, we're talking about, in this case, not simple diagnostics like moisture monitoring, like relative humidity, temperature, etc. Those are things that should be done on every job, every time a consultant does a project. We're talking about taking an air sample or taking a bulk sample of material and sending it to a laboratory for an analysis. And sampling, in my opinion, has a place, but I think oftentimes it's overdone, okay? The key points are when you are looking at a microbial remediation project, first of all, you need to ask certain questions. Why am I doing sampling, okay? Or why are you doing sampling? Or why am I requesting sampling? Is there something that I'm going to learn from this sampling that's going to help change the way I do this project. 
is um, there's something I don't know that I'm trying to find out. Essentially, it should be what they call hypothesis-driven. You should have some type of hypothesis, something that you're trying to find out, okay, and you're trying to either prove or disprove what that hypothesis is, all right? And, and if there is not a reason for doing sampling, then there's no need for sampling, all right? So sometimes it may not be necessary. Now, all the documents, and I would encourage consumers, we will have the link up to the epa.gov molding schools and commercial buildings. There is a page on sampling. And essentially what they say is sampling is not necessary in most, in, in many mold remediation cases. However, they then go on to say there are times when it might be useful or when it is useful. And there are issues like, do you know for, a set, you know, for certain that it is mold? A lot of people look at diffusers and the dirt and the dust on a diffuser. A diffuser is where the air is coming out of your uh, HVAC ductwork, okay? And you'll see this nice round diffuser on your ceiling, and it'll have a bunch of black-looking stuff on there, and they immediately think, oh, it's mold. It's got to be mold. I need a mold remediation project. Well, in some cases, verifying whether or not something is mold or not would require sampling, okay? A good consultant could probably look at it and take a, a light magnification and take a look at it and determine whether it's sample, whether it's a mold or not. But it might be necessary then to identify what the problem is. The other time we see a lot of sampling is legal issues. When you've got legal issues, there are oftentimes samples taken and, and many samples taken in those cases. We also see it when there are concerns about exposure pathways on medical issues. So in other words, do I have the type of organism that's causing this medical issue in this person, and is there a pathway for that organism to get to that person? So we'll see that. The other time we'll see people use sampling is when there's indications there may be mold in a home, but they can't quite figure out where or why. You got a musty smell, let's say, and your moisture meters aren't showing you anything. You can't quite pinpoint where it is. There are times when there are hidden sources that can be found through sampling and or through destructive type techniques by cutting holes, etc. And there are also times where I'd like to warn homeowners that contractors will want people to do sampling. And I understand their concern. They have either insurance sometimes or sometimes liability concerns. They want someone to come in and do an investigation up front, tell them what the levels of mold in the air, mold on surfaces, et cetera, are before they start the project, and then come in at the end and do the same thing again to tell them what those levels are at the end of the project. That's a consumer choice. If your contractor wants that, they want it for a reason. It might be their company policy. It might be their insurance, the way they wrote up their insurance. It could be any number of things. Then you have to decide, is that contractor the one you want to use, or is there another one that's saying, we don't need that? Um, that's a tough call, though, Cliff. Okay. What about insurance? Does homeowners cover mold remediation? In some cases... And most of the time, limited. Okay, so it might be a, like in Pennsylvania, I think it's a $10,000 uh, limit. Yeah, there's, and it's got to be 
oftentimes the result of a covered event, essentially. So you've had a sudden event that caused the problem, and there may be a limit on the amount of coverage. So most insurance companies in most states have written into their policies exclusions for mold remediation. So it might not be a bad thing for contractors to write in their scopes uh, to maybe exclude the word mold from appearing <laughs> uh, in a scope or in a uh, or in a proposal. Cause I guess that does happen. Huh? Well, we said at the beginning, we don't have a mold problem. We have a water problem. We've got a water problem, Cliff. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. What about mold or what, what should I do with my HVAC system? You know, that's a tough question. And, and on most mold remediation projects, and, and it depends again on the level, we've got a small project, you may or may not have, and it doesn't involve the HVAC, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, you may not have to do anything with the HVAC system. In most cases, I recommend on a medium size or larger project where there is concern that you have contamination from uh, fungal sources that have gotten into your HVAC system, and certainly when the HVAC system is the cause of the problem, it's recommended that they be cleaned after the other areas have been cleaned. So oftentimes they will do HVAC systems cleaning upon completion of the mold remediation. Now I want to caution consumers that cleaning should be done, again, using one of these levels of containment. Oftentimes it's what I would refer to as source containment, where the HVAC cleaning contractor actually cuts a hole into your supply duct or your return duct, hooks a machine up to that with a piece of flex duct, and actually creates a negative pressure within your ductwork so that while they clean each of those branches of your ductwork, all the contaminants are pulled down to that machine or outside to that machine. We have electric ones that go in the home. There are gas-powered and even truck-mounted ones that go outside of the home. I would also recommend, as does EPA and others, that if you're going to have HVAC systems cleaning, oftentimes referred to as duct cleaning, you have the whole system cleaned, not just your ducts. So that means your air handling unit, your coils if you have them in there, and all the other components that may be a part of that HVAC system. And by the way, it's probably not the worst thing you can do for your home in the first place if it's done right. Well, I think a couple of additional points. I think, number one, you should protect it so that during remediation, whether you're going to clean Absolutely. it or not, uh, protect the system. Do not allow it to get any worse. Also, uh, some in certain uh, instances, you can have microbial growth within the system. And this normally occurs when you have air conditioning and when you have coils. If you don't have air conditioning, if you don't have coils, it's probably not a problem. And if you don't have forced air, it's probably not a problem. So if you have radiant heat in your house or radiators, that sort of thing, uh, not an issue. This how is do you why know we work so well together, Cliff. Right. How, <laughs> do you know, how do you know when the job's done, Joe? Well, it, it really depends on the size of the job, whether or not you have a third party on the project or not, but I really encourage consumers to get good contract documents and have those contract documents spell out what is to be expected when the job is done. Typically what we're looking for is an area where all the moldy materials have been either removed or cleaned. We're looking for an area that's now dry 
that no longer has any musty odors, if that's uh, possible. In some cases, you know, you're in a crawl space that may not be possible unless you condition that crawl space, which is a whole nother topic. But um, And then also, there are times when a consultant writes a protocol with a clearly defined finish line is the way I like to call it. It's called a post-remediation verification by one of the most commonly used standards in the industry. Uh, where would a consumer go for more information, Joe? I, I highly recommend some government websites. Um, there are other good ones out there, and the IAQ Radio resources section has most anything you would need with respect to these references. I recommend the EPA's Mold Remediation in Schools and Commercial Buildings. There's good documents on the Health Canada website. Uh, Health Canada has done tremendous work and research on this issue, and they've got some excellent documents there as well. And we have a list of other documents on the IAQ Radio website, and we'll be putting a special section up for consumers as we go through this consumer series. Let's say hi to Dieter for a real quick comment, if we could. Okay. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, Joe. Uh, thanks. Uh, uh, and uh, you're absolutely right. It's just <clears throat> amplifying what you just said. You know I did two jobs in the last half year or so, one here in Pittsburgh. It doesn't matter for whom. The two-inch water line broke, and the place was flooded. There's no question about it. Um, <clears throat> And fortunately, the building owner uh, called me. Uh, I said, said fortunately because I think it was the right thing to do. And I said, hey, everything was wet. We tried to uh, dry it as quickly as possible, and they did. And I monitored a large area over a period of three weeks. Miraculously, as the drying progressed, uh, the mold levels uh, came down. And again, it's exactly what you said. You didn't have a mold problem. You had a water problem. And uh, you know about two other jobs I did, and uh, they were not in Pittsburgh. And it doesn't matter at all, really, where it was. There I was called in because somebody had taken air samples before me and uh, had written a report that, uh, you know, everybody in this building is going to die from mold infection and stuff like that. Yep. Uh, unbelievable. So I was called in to take more samples. In fact, in that office building, I, <laughs> I think the highest sample I had was 200 moles uh, per cubic meter of air, uh, which is virtually nothing, considering that during the summer there and here in Pittsburgh, we easily have 25 or 30,000 outside in the beautiful clean air. So there I was called in because people were complaining and uh, that not enough was done by the building owner. So the building owner bit the bullet and said, hey, stop the while, come in and uh, take samples and let us know what you think. So, yeah, you touched on both of those. And that is what, interestingly, the 15 people who complained about having had mold uh, um, uh, exposures after being tested by an allergist, not one of them showed, <laughs> not one of them showed any allergy to mold. But um, that's sometimes called mass hysteria. So, but yeah, I mean, there are there are a ton of reasons why you want to have uh, air samples, yeah, proactive, you, whatever you want to call it. 
All right. Well, thank you, Dieter. And this week, since Cliff's been doing the honors, why don't we let you sign off, Cliff? Okay, sure, Joe. It would be my pleasure. Well, uh, listeners, please join us next week. Before we go, I want to thank my co-host, uh, Joe Hughes, Radio Joe, Environmental and Koalecki, uh, the wingman Chris Boisel, who kind of oversees everything, uh, Dr. Dietrich Weil, uh, Ann Koalecki, Environmental Annie, uh, but most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next week, Friday at noon, for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.